Welcome back to another episode of the Education Movement Podcast. My name is Henry Rivera, and I will be the host for the show. In this episode, we are joined by two PhD holders, Dr. Margaret Marcus and Dr. Connor Williams, who share a wealth of insight on how to help ELL students. Throughout our conversation, we discuss the career path of both Dr. Marcus and Dr. Williams, the relationship between schools and ELL students during the pandemic, some practical ways to help our ELL students, and much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode just as much as I enjoyed making it. See you on the other side. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we are joined by two wonderful superstars in the field of American educational equity. For starters, we have Dr. Margaret Marcus, who is a visiting assistant clinical professor at the University of Maryland. Dr. Marcus got her PhD in applied linguistics and language education. Prior to pursuing her PhD, Dr. Marcus was a ninth grade Spanish teacher in Puerto Rico, then became a dual language teacher at a public school in DC before transitioning to the role of an instructional coach in a bilingual public charter school in DC. She also holds a master's degree in law and diplomacy where she studied development and economics and international monetary policy, and she worked as an economic analyst for the CIA. Next to her, we have Dr. Connor Williams, who is a fellow at the Century Foundation, where he writes about education, immigration, early education, school choice, and many other topics. Before Dr. Williams attained his PhD and master's in government from Georgetown University, he was a first grade teacher in Brooklyn, New York. Now, Dr. Williams's work has been published by the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, the Washington Post, the New Republic, and many other platforms. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome these two superstars, Dr. Marcus and Dr. Williams. Thank you both so much for being here today. How are you two? You're doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm excited yeah. to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely flattered that you accepted my invite. Uh, you know, I first met you two during one of the platforms that you hosted, uh, where we were talking about uh, ways that we can help our ELL students all around the nation. And... Um, I mean, I, I I feel so good just having a platform like the one that you're being a part of that platform because sometimes the work can be so intense or just, just feel so overwhelming that it, it can get a little solitary sometimes. Absolutely, especially when we're all virtual. Yeah. That's the idea, right? The, the English Learner Virtual Learning Forum is uh, supposed to be a space for educators, advocates, people working around these students to connect because otherwise we're just all experimenting alone and we're not going to be able to share what works and hopefully um, stop sharing what doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, You know, this is not the first time I've had uh, someone with a PhD on the podcast, but you know, what's better than having someone with a PhD on this podcast? Can I guess? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Having two, having two. And this is the first time I've ever had two PhDs. Uh, in the, in this podcast. So I'm very grateful for, for this moment right now. And so to start us off, I always like for the guests to tell us a little more about themselves. So uh, Dr. Marcus, if you don't mind starting us off, um, can you tell us a little more about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am Dr. Maggie Marcus. Um, you can call me Maggie. I live in Chevy Chase, Maryland. I'm just over the DC line um, from DC, about half a mile. Um, I'm a parent of three kids, uh, like Connor. I have all girls, though, and I'm trying to raise them bilingually with Spanish as their 
simultaneously bilingual, I should say, um, with Spanish as the additional language. I'm currently, as you, as you mentioned, the visiting assistant clinical professor at the University of Maryland um, in the College of Education, and I'm directing the world language program there. So I work with pre-service uh, Spanish, French, and um, Chinese teachers. And I'm also working with Connor on the EL virtual learning forum. And I met Connor through Donna Christian, who was on my dissertation committee when I was doing that work a couple of years ago. Dr. Connor Williams? Yeah, so Dr. Connor Williams, I, you know, I think I mentioned to you before the show, I, I don't get called doctor a lot anymore, uh, but it, it is, yes, I got the letters. So I, I live in Washington, D.C., uh, and I do, uh, as I, you know, I mentioned, I, I research and write about educational equity. I have three kids. I have uh, one girl in the middle and then older, older son and younger son. And then in addition to doing this work uh, publicly, re reading and, and researching and writing around uh, educational equity, I try to live it as well. My kids are at a, a Title I school. It's a wonderful Title I school here in, uh, in DC. I'm trying my best to, uh, to not be one of those nice white parents, right? Day to day uh, that everybody's talking about because of the podcast the New York Times has been running. So beyond that, I also run uh, with Maggie the, the, the uh, EL Virtual Learning Forum which, uh, as I mentioned, is this discussion space we're trying to connect educators to think about how to serve English learners best during the pandemic. Well, I, I really appreciate you both being here today. And uh, before we actually talk about some of the content in that forum, I'd like to know more about the things that got you into education. Like, did you know that you, like from the time you were a student, that you wanted to be in the education industry? Or just tell us a little more about that, uh, whoever wants to start. Okay, I'll start. Um, no, I did not want to be a teacher. <laughs> I, um, I come from teachers on my mom's side. My grandmother was a French teacher. Um, my mother was a German major and she was a substitute teacher before she became a flight attendant. But I, I loved um, Spanish. And so um, I started studying Spanish in, in middle school and high school. And I was fortunate, to, fortunate enough to travel to a few different Spanish-speaking um, countries. And so I got to really see what the language could do as far as interacting with people and, and learning about cultures. And my senior year of high school, I took a class that where I got to work in a bilingual school in Massachusetts. And this was in the early, this was, I guess it was 98, 99. And so bilingual education was becoming a a subject of tension, we should, I, sh I could say, in, in Massachusetts right before it actually got eliminated. And so it was a very interesting time to be in a bilingual program. And I really enjoyed working with, it was in a first grade classroom, working with small children and seeing how not really what I could teach them, but what they could what they could teach me, especially just, you know, other things I didn't know, right? I was a 18 year old kid and these are six year olds. And I mean, I was certainly the one learning from them. So um, I had this idea that I was gonna teach in Latin America after college and I didn't really know what that meant. Um, I just sounded like something I'd wanna do because I wanted to learn my Spanish or use my Spanish. And um, I had a professor at Skidmore who I was applying to some, you know, Costa Rica and like live in Bolivia and these kind of small programs or where you would pay and, and live with a family and teach. And she said, you know what, Maggie, you need to think bigger. And there was a brand new program in Puerto Rico that was very similar to Teach for America. And it was a two year teaching program with the Department of Education of Puerto Rico. I was paid. I was an employee of the government. And so that's what I decided to do. And um, after, I mean, 
when it was, it was a very eye-opening experience for me. Um, I think it really showed me um, the injustices and in access to education throughout the island. Uh, I was my public schools where I, where I taught in contrast to some of the private school, uh, I tutored kids for the um, pre-SAT or the, yeah, the pre-SAT. And it was the contrast to the, the access that they had and the knowledge that they had was so, I don't know what the word, it was, it was shocking to me. And so I think it really reminded me how lucky I was to go to a school in the suburb of Boston, in the suburbs of Boston that was well-funded. And I left Puerto Rico <laughs> quickly. <laughs> I was, I was ready to be, um, I was ready to leave um, Puerto Rico at that time. And I moved to California. I worked in medical sales. I got my, my master's in international relations. I worked for the CIA, but I really longed for the classroom. I really wanted to be in a place where I was making an impact and had that opportunity to work in a system that I knew had a lot of things to fix, um, especially locally. I mean, DC is a very international you know, environment city. And so there were a lot of these dual language programs. And so that's what I did. I went, I went back to the classroom from the CIA and um, my co-teacher always said that he thought I was there to spy on him. Um, <laughs> I was not. And then uh, transitioned to the instructional coach role and then eventually back to uh, school with the University of Maryland. Wow, that's, that's just fascinating. And I have so many more additional questions, but hopefully they'll, you know, they'll come to surface when we get to the other parts of, of this conversation. Dr. Connor Williams? Yeah, I came into education because I couldn't put it down. I, I, uh, I grew up in, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is a great town uh, and a wonderful place to grow up. But Back in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, it, the Midwest's economy was just collapsing, right? And, and uh, that meant that the town was, was facing all kinds of challenges. The GM plant closed, uh, the local pharmaceutical company. It's, it's a bizarre story, but they, they essentially invented Rogaine and then got bought out a gajillion times. And the next thing you know, all of the jobs that used to be in Kalamazoo, Michigan were in New Jersey. And so what that meant, though, was that People in that town who were already in kind of vulnerable straits, a lot of them lost jobs, a lot of them lost income. And that meant that the schools reflected that, that there was, there was a ton of dysfunction and a lack of resources to go with it. So, I, you know, I went to these schools. Um, my family couldn't afford to move to some of the suburbs outside of this small city where they had really highly resourced and highly functioning schools. So I went to these, these schools that in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which were in, in many ways really wonderful. They were under a, a desegregation busing order. And so I went to these highly diverse schools. I was one of these, I mean, you read about it now, apparently this is really rare, but for me, this was the norm was that every classroom was integrated and, and it was integrated by race, by socioeconomic status and what have you. But it was also, on the other hand, like a super boring experience. I spent my entire K-12 experience just waiting for it to be over. I mean, that we, the, the degree of academic rigor was, was non-existent in most of the classes I was in. A lot of the teaching was, was really not really great. And anyway, the long story short, though, is that I knew better because I was, uh, you know, I'd be occasionally I'd get into sort of like gifted and talented countywide programs and I'd get to talk to these kids. They'd tell me, oh, yeah, well, for our senior trip, we're going to Rome, and we've just finished our international baccalaureate diplomas. And I'm thinking, like, that, none of that sounds even vaguely like the universe in which I go to school. So I, I stayed mad about that. I, um, I went to a, a small liberal arts school uh, up in Maine. Great experience at Bowdoin College. But then I met some of these kids who'd gone to board, boarding schools, and I was so mad. I, I just... I, I stayed angry at the degree of educational disparity, like what opportunities other kids had gotten because of the, the status of their families. 
versus the ones that I had gotten. And I was lucky, right? That like some of my peers who didn't have some, some of the cushion and privilege that I was living with, you know, they were essentially failed by their school. So I joined Teach for America out of that. I stayed mad then. I went back to grad school. I stayed mad. And, and I, I sort of have worked my way into the research and, and, and writing and advocacy stuff that I do now. While there's so much more that I can ask you, I, I kind of want to keep the conversation focused on, you know, on, on how we can help our EL students. But just to start us off there, like of all things that you've seen in terms of educational inequities, what is it about um, helping EL students that interests you so much? Like, where does your passion to, you know, to, to host these forums and to, you know, do so much research on these things come from? Yeah, it was an accident for me, honestly. I, uh, when I got this job out of grad school, the first job I had out of grad school, I was doing education policy. I was writing and researching. I was doing the stuff I do now. My boss said, okay, well, you're going to do all this stuff. You're going to do universal pre-K research. You're going to do Head Start. You're going to do alignment between pre-K and kindergarten. Oh, and do the sort of young English language learner stuff too. And I, yeah, I was young and I had a lot of energy and I was writing about all this stuff, but I, I kept coming back to that ELL work because we're talking about a quarter to a third of our students. It's a third in the early years, uh, a quarter in the, the K-12 years who speak a non-English language at home who are in some way, shape or form English language learners. And there's just so little attention paid to them. So I didn't mean to focus on it so much as that I was interested in it. I was writing about it and I kind of looked around and there just weren't that many other people doing it. And the next thing I know, there were some funders who wanted to back my work and it kind of grew from there and, and I haven't been able to put it down. So I, I think about this question a lot and I think part of that is because writing my dissertation, I spent lots of time writing um, and also just thinking about my identity as a researcher, especially as a white native English speaker, you know, from a affluent background working on this issue. So I think I, I really am conscious of checking my privilege, if you will, and, and thinking about what that means and how, how do I understand the experiences? How do I integrate in it with, the, with the population that I am most interested in being an outsider? And I think it really does stem from my early introductions to education educational inequities in, in both Massachusetts. I mean, having an English teacher say the Spanish speakers were cold-blooded. I mean, just just awful things. And this was right before bilingual education was was outlawed. Um, I mean, and, and so I think, about, I mean, that was like over 20 years ago, and I still think about that. And also, I mean, as I mentioned, I think more formatively, my experience in Puerto Rico. And I really believe in my heart of hearts in the power of education to transform. Um, I think, you know, I've been lucky that I've been able to right, get a bachelor's and a master's and a PhD. Um, and so I think I really have the space um, and I am able to be to work with EL students and families and on the systemic uh, inequities that, that are you know, so present and being an outsider and an, an, an analytical person. Whereas I think sometimes if you're in the system and you're you know, trying to balance a bunch of needs, right? Like how you're going to get your kids to school or how you're going to put dinner on the table. You don't have that same space. And so I think it's really my, my privilege to be able to um, be in that, be in this space. And also I think the other, the only other, the other piece that I think about a lot is my daughters are in a bilingual, a language immersion school. And 
I can't tell you how many people I meet on the street or in whatever context that say, oh, it's such a gift to have your kids be bilingual and what a gift. And it makes me so mad because I just think of all the inequities in access to dual language education or to linguistic resources for families just because they're low of a, of a different income level. And so, you know, I think the system, the system generally, the education system in our country spends all this time stripping away linguistic and cultural identity for students that are poor and English learners, but gives it to those that are privileged and, you know, uh, mono English speakers. And so that's, I think that's where my passion comes from is um, really wanting to do my, do my part um, to address that inequity. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how, you know, depending on, I guess, who's benefiting from the bilingualism, uh, which determines what kind of rhetoric you're going to be getting, right? You're either, it's either going to be a gift if it's your English speaking privileged students who are learning a new language, but if it's minority students who are coming in who don't speak English, then it's this inconvenience and it's this, it's some form of uh, like a, a leeching kind of uh, rhetoric that you get, like they're just coming here to take advantage of it. So it, it, uh, when, when you said it, that's what I thought about. And for me, like the, the work that I'm doing behind like my own projects with, with ELL students and even an episode like this one is just for me, it's personal. I came to the United States when I was nine and, and, I, and I was an ELL student. And now I felt like I picked up on the language in about in under a year. And yet I was tracked as an ELL student from fourth grade all the way through high school where some of the classes I was taking were a joke. You know, I was like, why are we, why am I still learning about this? And so I think being in the classroom and me seeing students who are like myself, you know, who are picking things up quickly, it's, I feel like it's my duty to make sure that um, not only do I recommend these students to be taken out of the ELL program and just be in, you know, full immersion classes, but also, you know, mentor them and, and, and push them to, to be better. Sorry, with that being said, I, I just want to express, you know, some sincere gratitude because I think when the work isn't personal to you and yet you decide, like you have this passion for it and you decide that this is what you want to dedicate your time to, it's something that you really, you know, you don't have to do that. So I, I, I have an appreciation for, for the work that y'all do. Now, just moving things along from from what you found, because you both do a lot of research and, you know, and you write about this topic from what you found, what are some universal practices and or mindsets that educators can employ to best serve their ELL students? Yeah, uh, especially now, but also when schools are in person is get them talking, uh, use language. It turns out that. Well, look, anybody who, who comes from the kind of privilege that I do, like who started taking Spanish in middle school knows that when you have a pop quiz on verb conjugations, like kids don't actually learn language that way. But if you make them use it to talk to the cute girl next to them, like then they might get somewhere. If you make them use it to order a beer when they're in college and old enough, hypothetically, then they learn it. If you use it, if, 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 the point is that language is something that it's a tool. At the end of the day, if they're not using it for purposes that they actually care about, it's just not going to sink in anywhere near as well or as quickly. So get kids talking. 
that's more important now than ever, given the kind of isolation we're talking about and given the complexity of distance learning across different devices and what have you. So oral language development is huge. During the pandemic, maybe that means things like uh, setting up WhatsApp groups to, to get texting at least going. And maybe it means a phone tree where they've got like a phone pal that they're calling once a week. And then it, you know, it, swing, it switches every couple of weeks, something like that. Maybe it means pen pal, I mean, it doesn't matter, but like find ways to get language as part of their constant usage. And importantly, that means any language. We have good research showing that if you're a really strong reader, writer, speaker, listener in Spanish, in Korean, in whatever language you speak at home, that's gonna help you acquire English too. So immersing a kid in English in and of itself isn't necessarily what we're going for here. We're going for strong usage and development of any languages that they speak. I think also, I so I was working somewhere in the editorial world, but uh, this summer on a paper that I wrote with some colleagues about student talk and the importance of student talk. And just that's not something that our education system is really accustomed to, right? We don't let kids talk. We like teachers to talk. We tend to think that that's the way to control the classroom. And that's, you know, the teacher dominant um, mentality. And I think, like Connor was saying, you know, there's a lot of research on the importance of, of student talk um, for, for oral proficiency. And I think, you know, it's so important for, for students to be able to practice talking. And I also think now in the situation is really making it relevant, right? So like writing a thank you letter to an essential worker or um, describe a recipe that a fan or talk about, you know, make a video of a thank you to an essential worker, talk about a recipe that your family member is making or your favorite, you know, food that you're getting from a restaurant or, or just things that are actually happening um, and connecting with other students so that it's not like you're talking about the wolf in the forest who, you know, or, or something that doesn't really have any relevance <laughs> to right now. So, yeah. So one more thing I want to add on that too is uh, mindsets wise, it's critical for educators and for schools and also for policymakers to, to do, to be able to think two things at once around these students. So like on the one hand, it is absolutely the case that our schools don't serve these students well or as well as they deserve. It is also the case that these students are often defined by their language use, but are also the, the biases they face are intersectional, right? They are overwhelmingly students of color. Their child poverty rates are higher than English dominant households, especially in recent years. Many of them, almost all of them, by the way, majorities, large majorities are, are native born English, uh, or, sorry, native born American uh, uh, citizens, but they live in and amongst immigrant communities and often are children of immigrants themselves. So they're facing additional anxiety and trauma from really unstable immigration uh, policies and enforcement now. So there's all of those real systemic biases and challenges that they're facing. But the other thing, the critical mindset for educators to remember is that these are some of the highest potential students we have, according to the data. And we see this over and over again, that one of the biggest challenges, and this is just like wonky, technocratic, boring ed policy, but one of our big, big challenges is we only keep track of these students while they're English learners. Once they test out, we stop caring. We know they're just former English learners. Now they're normal students. They're English proficient. We don't see how they do. In the couple of places, there's a few states that do this now, we actually do have those data. We see that their graduation rates, their achievement rates are actually higher than the rest of the school, as in the rest of the state. They, they tend to be some of our highest academic performers once they hit English. It's just we don't keep track of it after that. And so those, that's the mindset, is you have to be very mindful of the ways that they face bias. And then also, in awe, and in, in total appreciation of the real assets they're bringing to the classroom so that you make the most use of those for them and that you help them develop as best you can. Wow, that's awesome. That's, that's, uh, that's a fantastic thing to know 
that that I think if I'm an educator, I'd be like, wow, that actually that would switch my mindset. Like, wait, this is not just some inconvenience. Actually, this is probably one of the you know the highest achieving kids that I'll, that I'll probably be teaching. And that's 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 key. That's awesome. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. And as a matter of fact, speaking of mindsets, I know this is something um, Maggie you had mentioned earlier. How when you were teaching at I believe it was in Puerto Rico that you mentioned that you said I, I was learning from my students. What were what grade were you teaching again? Well, every, everywhere I have certainly learned from my students, but um, since you mentioned Puerto Rico, what that reminds me of is um, shipping my car there and having a peace break and, you know, the dealer was going to charge me, I don't know how much. And my student, two of my students said, you know what, Missy, Missy Sullivan, we can fix that for you. And those kids, you know, I went to their house, I brought the part and I mean, and it was, it was like, wow, that's something I wouldn't have seen in the classroom. That's something that in my world, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily appreciated or known to appreciate, right? And so I think it, I didn't learn how to change whatever part it was, <laughs> but I learned, right, that they had these strengths that weren't identified in the traditional way that they were evaluated in a, um, a classroom. You reminded me, when you said that, you reminded me of uh, one summer when I was teaching a class that was diverse in languages but it was supposed to be just a class where it was my job to somehow get students who weren't fluent English speakers to pass a state exam an English state exam which was easily the hardest thing I've ever had to do as an educator but what made the class so dynamic and just so cool to be in is because I had uh, Brazilian speaking Portuguese and I had uh, Spanish speakers and I had Arabic speakers it's like we were all learning from one another, you know, I was asking them the days of the week. And how do you say that? Um, like, how do you say that in Arabic? How do you say that in Portuguese? How do you say that in Spanish? And so, I mean, because I'm kind of nerdy, I guess I was probably getting the most excited <laughs> out of learning some of this stuff. But then they can sense your excitement, too. So then they'd, they'd have that sense of excitement, too. Like, OK, I guess this is cool. So I, I always think about that. I always think about how, you know, when you, when you don't think of them as a bunch of empty vessels, that it's your job to fill them, that it, it makes a, a totally different impact in the way that you teach. Your pain, you ready? Yeah. Man, let's lock and load. Yeah. Just blaze. Yeah. No, turn me up. Hey. Yeah, I think we got one. Yeah. Here we go. Tell me what do you see, see. when you're looking at me. So moving on to the, another topic that I wanted to touch on with you too is from what you found, how is this pandemic affecting the relationship between schools and ELL students from what you've seen? So you hear, I hear a lot of people thinking and talking about digital divides, right? And, and those are real. I mean, we have some pretty good da uh, data, not, not great, but we have suggestive data that, that hints that English learning students are likely to be on, you know, quote unquote, the wrong side of the digital divide a lot. They, they tend to lack access to the devices. 
the data, the connectivity that they need uh, to access remote virtual distance learning. And that's important that schools address that. I mean, this is not, I don't want to dismiss that as an issue because if you're doing virtual learning on Zoom and Google Classroom and kids don't have Chromebooks, then we have a real problem. But I think that the other thing that I'm hearing a lot of is how it's, that's actually a secondary issue still, right? That given that intersectionality I was talking about before, we have to really think about the degree to which kids of color who are often in immigrant communities, who are often very near or below the poverty line, this pandemic is hitting them in ways that go well beyond lack of access to a Chromebook. And so a lot of what schools are having to, to rethink, and, and in some cases, I think doing a better job than others, is how do we start addressing some of those basic needs? How do we start meeting families where they are? How do we start ensuring that there's a, someone put it on the, um, the virtual learning form the other day, right? It's the Maslow's hierarchy of needs before Bloom's taxonomy, right? Maslow's before Bloom's. How do we focus on those basic pieces first? So, so that's huge. And, and I think the pandemic is exacerbating the inequities that we were seeing before. I agree. So I, I do echo and agree with what Connor has said, um, 100%. And I think part of the issue too is that many schools were already facing challenges. And we talked about this a little bit, right, with providing adequate services for their EL students. And I think the pandemic has really exacerbated that. And in some cases, it's even legal requirements, right? Like having access to, I forget what the technical name is here that they call, but like important materials in your native, in your essential, you know, communication in your native language. And so I think, and even not knowing what platform works for families, right? Um, I mean, I think emailing, and then it turns out families don't have email accounts. And so there are these really basic things that have only been heightened, right? Our awareness of them is heightened um, now in the pandemic. And so part of it is, is having systems in place also because I think teachers, you know, we've spoken to a lot of teachers who are just spread so thin because they're not just teaching. They're also the tech support and they're the translators and they're the, um, you know, finding the food stops and, you know, ordering diapers or, you know, all sorts of different things that and it's not that they're not willing to do it, but it's just that they're right they're being pulled in 25,000 directions. And so I like to think that the pandemic in this sense will provide schools a space to reflect and reevaluate on some of these systems and procedures. And I hope that that's kind of a silver lining whenever this ends, that there is a realization that schools need to meet families where they are and there might be modes of communication or you know they might maybe they'll be they'll be a, a translation system that you know becomes efficient and effective for families but i think a lot of this is just realizing all these deficiencies that were there before but weren't really talked about necessarily um, until now they're in in the faces of all these schools and communities yeah i love i love what you're both saying about you know, about taking or having these systemic issues that, you know, that are already, that have been there before the pandemic and how the pandemic is just really bringing them out. But I think the first thing that I wanted to comment on is that, yes, that some, some of the, the way that we're communicating with some of these families is, is, is kind of funny, right? Like we want to send emails to a family that has no access to internet. You know, <laughs> how, how does that make sense? And so when you think about uh, systemizing these approaches and, and from what you said, Maggie, about, you know, the amount of responsibilities that we're giving to teachers is, I mean, as, as, as someone who was in the classroom, I sometimes felt like it was all up to me, 
because I mean, I was being called for, for those things you were talking about, for the translations, you know, because I also have a relationship with this student and their family, then I have to, you know, make sure that I'm communicating with them. And, and while I don't mind doing it, yeah, I have like 20 other jobs I have to do. So it was, it was so difficult. And it wasn't until I started seeking help outside of just my own brain that I also started to see that some states were taking this wildly different approach where they were taking a statewide approach to, to how to address these, you know, these, these inequities. And I thought that was so fascinating because I, I said, wait a minute, why, why are we putting it? Well, why am I putting it all on myself? Or sometimes why are some schools putting it all on the teachers as if, you know, as if it's just up to this one person or, you know, this small group of people to, to figure it out. So I, I, I really, I agree. And I love that approach. Yeah, man, I couldn't agree more than I do. Like I've seen some of the polling data out of California of, uh, of Spanish speaking families. And, and actually it wasn't just Spanish speaking. It was like non-English uh, native speaking families. I, I forget the exact percentage, but the percentage, it was something that was like, like a third or fewer of the families that they pulled in this particular sample size had at reliable access to an email address, right? I mean, think about how, what a gap that is between how schools are approaching uh, family communications in a lot of contexts. And also think about what a gap that is from a lot of the, like, frankly, elite, pretty white discourse about school reopening and about what the issues really are. I mean, every time I hear, usually, again, wealthy white parents complaining about the pandemic, and, and I'm, I'm sure, surely guilty of this myself, but when I hear them talking about what their challenges are, I think about polling data like that. And I, think, I, I don't think we're anywhere near having the conversation we need to have about equity during the pandemic, equity during distance learning, equity when we think about reopening, like who gets to go back first when it's safe. It's, it's absolutely insane. And yeah. can I just add on, um to that, I think one of the things that I found most fascinating, which was not necessarily the focus of my dissertation, but one of my findings was how these systems, right, are really made for the people who make the system, right? So the the middle class, you know, district workers who all have college degrees and, you know, mostly speak English are the ones that are establishing the system where you have to sign up, you know, you have to go to the district website to find out about school, you know, days off from school. I mean, just things like, like that, that um, really don't work with families, right. Who don't have access to, to email or who, you know, grew up in a different environment where everything wasn't so digitized. Um, and that was really interesting to me because I, I noticed that over and over and over again. And I, I think especially in the pandemic, right. Still these things like, oh, well, they couldn't, like, why aren't they on Zoom? And it's like, well, they didn't have an email to get the Zoom link, you know? So I think there's still certainly a lot of work to be done there. So I'm going to shift gears here. And <clears throat> I want to talk about some of the resources, just any, any that you, you know, that you know that have been very helpful to either other educators that you know, that you've heard, you know, people speak highly of, or that you've used yourself that are, you know, that would be very useful for, educators or for schools to best serve their ELL students? Yeah, so we've got a, a curated list of pandemic-friendly online EL resources that we've put together as part of the EL Virtual Learning Forum. And so anyone who's interested, and we'll give you the details at the end of the podcast, you know, join and, and uh, you'll see the link there. The EL Success Forum, different name near our name, but EL Success Forum, um, 
that's a different group. They have some good guidance on how educators can evaluate different curriculum materials they have and, and whether they're supportive of ELs. They've also got some other good instructional advice on, on serving ELs during the pandemic. And then, you know, if you're uh, long on time, <laughs> I'm like chuckling thinking, a teacher who has all the time in the world during the pandemic, but if you have the time, I mean, there, there's a great report from 2017 that the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine put out on, uh, called Promising Futures. It's, it's the best collection we have of, of where the research is on what these kids need and what serves them best. So, so that's also worth checking out, especially now because we're in such an unprecedented moment, right? You know, how do you serve them during a pandemic? Nobody knows. But we do know, right, stuff like oral language development, stuff like supporting their home language development, that stuff matters. And that report, that, that 2017 report, is reasonably good at pointing out some of the critical parts of ELL education that I think that, that could be valuable to teachers too. And I, I do want to say, I mean, Connor said it's a it's a list, but it's actually a liston, as we would say in Spanish, right? It is a it is a big list. It has lots of different resources um, for all sorts of math or um, reading or you know authentic texts. I mean, all, all sorts of things. And there's one, and I think Connor, we need to put it on because I don't think it's on our list. Is um, Colorín Colorado. Um, which is a site for educators and it can, I mean, a site for families too, but um, they have some really good resources for English learners um, and videos um, for, you know, different educational videos. And the report that Connor mentioned is free also. It's long. <laughs> it's a big report, but it is, I, I used it a lot in my dissertation because it's a really good summary of um, what's going on with, with EL students. And it's, you know, 2017, so it's pretty, pretty recent. Well, if you don't mind, I believe I have access to that list and I can link it to the show notes on this podcast. If, yeah, if that's okay with you, that's okay yeah. with me. Is there anything else that you would want the listeners to know about you or the work that you do? Yes, I just, Henry, want to make a plug for educators um, taking some time for self-care now. Um, I think we're all, I mean, as we were talking about, everyone is spread thin, right? Um, and I think educators particularly, is, when they work with minoritized populations or disadvantaged populations, they're put in a lot of different, they're pulled in a lot of different directions. Um, and I think it's so important for mental health because we're all you know, meeting on Zoom and we're not really connecting with people um, outside of our immediate families or you know, pets, which aren't people. But I think it's really important for that for people to take time to do, you know, go for a walk or read a book or, you know, ha meet a friend for a socially distant glass of wine or, you know, just, just to be able to kind of take some time. Because I think if you're, if you're too much in your head, you don't have the space to do this really important work. Um, and I think that's often like a part that we neglect and forget about. Yeah, I would just echo that and say thank you to anyone out there who's trying right now. Um, educators working in the classroom in particular i really i'm very grateful as a parent and and um, also as a you know an advocate for yells well i'm very grateful for both of you coming on to here now before we wrap things up uh what i normally do <clears throat> when i have just one guest is i usually do a round of rapid fire questions where i would tell them okay you know i'm gonna ask you this question and uh, first thing that comes to your head let that be your answer but since we have two I feel like it wouldn't be fair if we did that. So what we're, what we're going to do instead to, you know, end on a fun note is we're going to play a small round of trivia. 
And um, because I figured, hey, we got two PhDs here, so I, they know everything. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, we'll make this a friendly competition. Whoever gets the most points wins. We have a total of 10 questions. And uh, we'll see who collects more points at the end. Does that sound good? Sure, let's do it. All right, let's do it. Here's question number one. What color are aircraft boxes? Aircraft boxes? Mm -hmm. Brown. White or gray? The correct answer is actually bright orange. What is an aircraft box? I, should, I, I, I believe I probably copied the question, the question wrong here. I'm actually thinking that it should be called a black box, right? <laughs> oh, oh, right. The yeah. ones the in black the, box. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And orange act- makes sense because that's you find it on the bottom of the ocean. Right. That's exactly. You should call it an orange box, though. But. <laughs> you should yeah. call it an orange box. All right. Question number two. In what year did the Titanic sink? 1916. <laughs> I love how he's like he's waiting because it's clearly not right. I know. <laughs> well, I'm like I think be. it was. Yeah, I, I don't know. Let's say um, 1914. Well, you were both pretty close. The year is actually 1912. Oh. Yeah, you're pretty close. All right. Question number three: Under which president did Thanksgiving become an annual holiday? Warren Harding. Honestly, I have I have like all these Thanksgiving books over on my bedside table, but. Um, I won't cheat. I don't know. Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. It is actually Abraham Lincoln. I didn't Darn know that it, either. I should have known that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Okay, question number four. This is another Thanksgiving question. Where does the oldest Thanksgiving parade in the U.S. take place? Not Plymouth, Massachusetts. New York City, why not? Manhattan. Okay. Is it, oh. Williamsburg, Virginia? Those are all great guesses. It's actually Philadelphia. Oh. Yeah. All right. Let's see. This one's also more in theme. Uh, number five, in which country did Halloween originate? Mexico. Mexico. Oh, really? I, turns out uh, Dias de los Muertos, maybe. Yeah. But Halloween is from <laughs> Ireland. I figured we yeah. stole it. I thought yeah. it was Dias de, Dia de, de los Muertos that I just got across the border and then we messed it up is it all hollow's eve or something that we we, we messed yeah, it that up sounds right. i think we like combined it with like whatever the irish were doing we're like okay we'll oh. take some you know some mexican heritage some irish and we'll make it an american thing all right yeah. question number six name the magician who died on halloween houdini he is a, fam- he is a famous magician connor says houdini I, that, I'm going to agree because it's the only magician I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> All right. Well, you both got that right. It is Houdini. Oh. <laughs> All right. Question number seven. Which country produces the most coffee in the world? As a former Brazil. Starbucks employee, I should know this. Costa Rica? No. All right. It turns out Connor got that one. It is Brazil. Oh, he said Brazil. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think... I think... Maggie, you may have an advantage on this one. I don't know why. I just think you do. Question number eight. What is it called when a bottle of champagne is opened with a sword? <laughs> um, you know, they did that when I spent 29 nights at the St. Regis in Mexico City. They did that every Wednesday night and it was lovely, but I have no idea what it's called. <laughs> do you know? Tuesday. Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. 
Um, the Every correct day. answer is actually sabering. It's called sabering. Sabering. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, let's see. We got two more to go. Question number nine. According to Greek mythology, who was the first woman on earth? Oh, oh man, oh. I, I'm stuck because I... So I've got a name in my head, but it's not... She's not a human woman. She's... Not Cersei. It's one that I, I didn't I didn't know. I had I, I was like, oh really? Okay. I'm gonna go with Gaia. I think Gaia is like the Earth Mother, and she doesn't count, but that's the best I got. Okay. Um, her name is actually Pandora. Oh, oh yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She opens literally opens the box. I mean, right. yeah. Whoops. Yep. Yep. I said the same thing. I was like, oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, um, last question, number 10. I, I have a feeling y'all are going to get this one, or one of you is. Question number 10. Samuel Tilden, Grover Cleveland, Al Gore, and Hillary Clinton share what distinction among U.S. presidential candidates? I do know this one. Mm. Go for it, because I don't think I know this one. They won the majority vote and did uh, not ultimately assume the presidency. Mm -hmm. That is correct. They won the popular vote, but lost the electoral college vote. Isn't that something? <laughs> well, listen, before, before we wrap things up here, um, if somebody wants to know more about you and the work that you do, um, where can they go and what can they do? Well, um, so you can email me at, it's a, my email is just my name, but you can't forget the S or there's some other random Maggie Marcus that gets it. So it's Maggie S Marcus at gmail.com. Uh, you can also email me at mmarcus at umd.edu. Um, I am on Twitter also. I am not as um, faithfully on Twitter as um, our friend Connor is, but it's just Maggie S Marcus and um if you do Peloton, I'm on Peloton too, but um, email me and then I'll give you my handle. <laughs> nice, nice. I didn't even know Peloton was a thing one could be on. Like in that, I mean, you could sit on the bike and I knew it was, I guess in theory you had a- You can follow your friends and like work out with them and stuff, you know? I still, I still work out analog. I, I jog in shoes outdoors, um, <laughs> which is hard to, well, whatever. Yeah. All right, so- uh, yeah, so best way to reach me is email, and, and mine is simple. It's Williams, like the greatest tennis player ever. So Williams at TCF, T as in Tom, C as in Connor, F as in foundation, uh, .org. So Williams at TCF.org. I'm also on Twitter at Connor P. Williams. And, and please uh, do get in touch if you'd like to join the EL Virtual Learning Forum. Just shoot me an email, and, and we'll get you on there. Uh, if you are an educator who works with English learners, we'd love to have you. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. And I will make sure that I also uh, incorporate your contact info on our show notes. So if anybody who is listening and you didn't get a chance to write it down, it's all on the show notes. Can all I right. ask you a trivia question before we wrap up? Oh, gosh. Yes. Okay. It's for both of you. Okay. Which city in Massachusetts has the zip code that is the year of, the, you, of independence? Which, which city is it in Massachusetts? And what is the zip code? Oh, and what is the zip code? Well, I can give you the zip code if you want, but. Okay. What's the zip zero, code? So 01776, right? Okay. Yeah, that's what I, okay. Which city in Massachusetts has that zip code? I'm gonna I think go it's got to be Lexington. I'm going to go with New England. You're close. Um, it's Sudbury. And I only know that because that's where I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> I would have never fight, gotten that. Apparently, yeah. 
I would have never gotten that. You can add that to your next uh, trivia questions. By all means, I will. <laughs> it's recorded, so I'll make sure I actually uh, write it down. And, you know, thank you both so much for being here today. I had, I had a great time talking to you two, and, and I've learned a lot, and I can't wait to share all the info that y'all, y'all brought to this conversation. So thank you very much, and not just for being here, but just for the work that you're doing as well. Hey, man, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, Henry. Yes, absolutely. And um, if you're interested in joining the um, virtual forum, uh, you can, again, you can email Connor, you can email Maggie, or you can email myself and I'll put you in touch with them. Otherwise, it's been a pleasure talking to you both. Talk to you later. Yep. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode with Dr. Marcus and Dr. Williams. All of the resources mentioned in this episode can be found on our show notes. You can also contact me through email at theeducationmovement20 at gmail.com or through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the handle edumovement20. As always, thank you to all of you who have already given this podcast likes, reviews, and follows. This movement and platform keeps on growing because of listeners like you. Until next time, friends, please remember to stay healthy, stay safe, spread love, and spread hope. Peace.